I get up there and leave the world, the business world below and put the phone away and you get to the plane and you have to pre-flight it and you have to just change your focus and whatever meeting you had or whatever was bothering you that you're thinking about, you just have to put it out of your mind because now you're a pilot. And this is more important than anything else in the world at that moment. And that's for me, a relief when I get to do that and just focus on flying. Welcome to The Climb. I'm your host, Michael Moore. And this morning we are sitting down with C.T. Charlton, president of the Charlton Group, which provides superior representation and project management support for a global network of clients in North America, Europe, and Asian Pacific markets. C.T., welcome to The Climb. Thank you, Michael. Good to be here. Glad to have you. So just for a little background, C.T. and I met much like we are this morning, virtually on a YPO forums training. And as my ADD was kicking in and I was trying to pay attention to everything that we were learning about the importance of forums, which is a whole topic we can dive into later today, uh, I started doing some research and realized that CT and I both attended the University of Colorado. So CT, before we jump the buffs. the buffs. Before we jump in, what are your thoughts on on Coach Prime and and how's our football season going to look? Oh man, how cool! Right when I heard that, I started at Colorado in what year was it? Two thousand two, I guess. I think it was two thousand two. And our football team was average, but we had had a few good years before I got there, and we we have just been tearing down since. We just need some revitalization in the program. And having him there and just kind of hearing what he's saying and watching what he's doing, I'm stoked. We need it. I'm ready. He's going to be great. Well, as you probably know, they are doing a home and home with TCU. And so last year it was up in Boulder. And this year they are both opening against each other in Fort Worth, Texas. So if you can find your way down here, you are more than welcome. I have invited Coach Prime to the pre and post game festivities at my house. I'm hoping he's going to bring Ralphie. We're expecting well north of 100 people. So I hope you're in town. I appreciate it. I will absolutely check the schedule and see if we can make that work. Hopefully. So look, before we jump in with us just coming through Memorial Day, I don't know about you, but I often sort of pause and, and think about all the great men and women before us and, and now that put themselves in harm's way so we can enjoy the freedoms that quite often sometimes I think we we forget about and, and take for granted. And so whether it's your, your family or people you've met through work, let's sort of just start out by opening up your thoughts and feelings around multi-generational family businesses, which you're in, and we'll get into that in a minute, but just the the importance of the men and women that come before us and the sacrifices they make. And, you know, if you were standing in front of a group of your employees, you know, wh what would you say to them about sort of the sanctity that that provides? Yeah, well, my younger brother, who also went to see you, he's a bit younger, but he's now living in Colorado Springs, and he's a Green Beret. And he's going to be deployed here. We don't know where, but somewhere in Eastern Europe coming up soon. So for me, I have a very serious emotional connection to anybody who's willing to dedicate their life to protect us and to protect our way of life. 
And, you know, I just got back from Eastern Europe, actually on Saturday, kind of an odd way to do my Memorial weekend, but got to do what you got to do. But, you know, I spent some time in Poland and Czech and beautiful countries. We have got some phenomenal business partners there, but seeing what's going on right next to them and watching my family come over to help support them, you know, we're keeping, keeping an even closer eye on them and keeping them all in our prayers constantly. So. Well, that certainly hits close to home, and, and thank you for sharing that. What was his, you know, being your brother, I spent a lot of time thinking about my brother and I, obviously, right? We've got the same mother and father, so arguably a lot of the same DNA components, but, you know, in some ways we're very similar, in some ways we're miles and miles apart in the way that we think about things or do things. So, Share with us, what do you think it was in your brother that had that, that call to duty and, and now obviously getting close to deployment? Yeah, he's the guy who, when he sets his mind to something, he's not just going to do it. He's going to be the best at it. And that has been him from the, you know, the second we met. He, and I say met, he's my uh, stepbrother, but you know he's my brother. And so he, just the most caring, honorable guy you've ever met just wants to always wants to protect people always wants to be there for people um, and he set his mind in college he was always into martial arts he was always just tough as shit i mean the guy is just so tough but i think it was maybe his junior year at cu he just says i'm gonna go and i'm gonna do i want to do a fast track program to delta force and we all said you know, oh, okay, you want to go to the military, cool. You know, maybe you want to do the officer program. You're, you know, you get a college degree. You're a really intelligent kid. And he says, nope. He goes, I don't want to be an officer. He says, I want to fast track and do special forces. And they have a program there that you can do that. And, you know, you have to meet all of these incredibly challenging milestones. And of course, he put his mind to it and he did it. It wasn't even a question if he was going to do it. You know, he's the guy on the weekends. Michael, we're... we're you and I might have been at the sink and he's free climbing one of the flat <laughs> yeah. irons. So he's just that kind of guy. And some of the stories that he told from boot camp, it's pretty wild what they go through. You know, they just middle of the night, wake you up, throw your pack on, and they just say, run. And you don't know where you're running. You don't know if it's two miles or 40 miles. And sometimes it's 40 miles and you're running in the middle of the night. You're running through lakes, over fences, through everything. I mean, it's, it's really, Pretty amazing the stuff that uh, that he went through, but he's on the other side of it now. He is learning Russian, which is pretty cool, and he'll be uh, supporting our country in Eastern Europe in the next couple of weeks. Wow. Yeah. Well, our thoughts and prayers are are with him and and y'all's family. Certainly, huge amount of of honor and appreciation for his willingness to do that and a swift and and safe return as well. No, thank you for sharing that. So another commonality that, that CT and I share is a connection to Detroit, Michigan. I talk a lot about being a, an eighth generation Texan, which I am, but I actually was born in Detroit when my dad was doing some work up there. So I thought that was another interesting connection that CT and I share with his family's affiliation with, with the great state of, of Michigan. And maybe we'll start there. The Charlton Group was founded, I believe, CT in 1978 in sort of a, a partnership between your, your grandfather and your dad. Now you are president of that organization, but 
Walk us back to that time and the beginnings and this OEM model that I think is much more prevalent and known today, but back then was probably, now you tell me, I mean, a little bit more cutting edge in that business model. Yeah. So just to give a little bit of background on my family and where we came from. So my grandfather, my dad's dad, grew up in a pretty rough area of Detroit. As everybody probably knows, Detroit's got a lot of them. And so he grew up trying to make a dollar any way he could, just trying to survive. Didn't have any education, didn't really know how. He just had a, he had a knack for dealing with people, for reading people. Everybody liked him. But, you know, he'd make uh, a few hundred bucks and he'd go and put it towards a new Cadillac, right? <laughs> he, he, didn't, he didn't know what the right way to do things was. My grandma was a Greek immigrant. And so she came here and did what all the, the good Greeks did in Detroit and uh, her family opened a Coney Island and they lived above it. No in kidding. Detroit. And so, yeah, they grew up, you know, they, she worked two jobs. He worked three. He would set his alarm for two hours so he could sleep before he'd go to the night shift on the radio. And they raised my dad to show them a different life. And he did. So my father put himself through Michigan State, first one in our family to go to college. And he after school, he was working at a computer company in Detroit called Burroughs. And you know, I don't know what a computer looked like in 1973. It was big. Pretty massive. But you're right. And he was, during the nights, he was working at a bar called The Cave on Warren and Mount Elliot, which is not a good part of town then, still not a good part of town now. And which is also pretty funny because my dad's never drank. So I, I can't, you know, I've never let him make me a drink. I, I don't even want to know what he was pouring people. But he was working at a bar. And then in his free time, he would slap on his one suit from Kmart, hop in his 68 Rambler, and knock on doors of manufacturers around Michigan and other states saying, hey, I'm Chris Charlton. I, let me help grow your business. I, you know, I live in Detroit. This is where we make cars. Let me be your sales guy. Because there was the, the, self, self, excuse me, the sales rep model in Detroit was pretty common. People understood it. Now, being the first guy to do it, and my dad's very gregarious, just a huge personality. But, and even at 22, I can see him, you know, just like, hey, I'm Chris Charlton. <laughs> Everybody loves him. So he knocked on the door of a, a company in Mount Vernon, Ohio. And the son of the owner opened the door. They started talking. He was about the same age. They did industrial piping and different things like that. And the guy said, you know, we've always talked about getting into cars. We think that's a booming business and we just really haven't known how to do it. Maybe, you know, we, we work together. And so my dad pulls up this makeshift contract that he wrote and the guy goes, well, you know, we don't sign anything, but, you know, don't worry. You sell anything. You got my word. I'm honest. And so they shook hands and that was October 11th, 1978. And we see that as the foundation of our company. So my dad drove back to Detroit trying to figure out how the hell he was going to do what he said he was going to do. And so that client is still a partner of ours today. We still don't have a contract with him. It's still just based on a handshake. And so it's been 45 years. And that's the sort of mentality we try to bring to all of our partners. We want to be the guys who are with you when you're suffering. We want to be the ones who you come to when you need some help, when you need to um, cut some costs, when you need an investment, whatever that is, we want to be those guys. And so our company started my in my uh, after my dad came back he was working out of my grandparents basement not a big house but they had moved to gross point at this time which is just outside of st clair shores 
And I remember being a young kid, you know, four, five, six, and there'd be like five desks in my, in my grandpa's basement and they'd be working out of the basement. And I remember vividly because when you see like, you know, you see a cop when you're a little kid, it registers because you think something's wrong or right. It's just somebody in a uniform, you know, an important figure like that. And I remember the police coming to the door and saying, look, guys, the neighbors are calling the cops again. <laughs> Their cars all the way down the street again. You need, you can't have a business out of this neighborhood. You need to form a building. And I remember my, you know, my smooth talking dad just, hey, you know, these, you know, these four Japanese guys in black suits, they're just over for breakfast. They're, like, they're just friends. That's so great. And the guy's like, Chris, come on, come on, come on, let's go. So finally, we built a building, built the building we're in now. And the sales model, while still the core of what we do, has started to shift. And so we've, We've built up ancillary businesses to support the growth of our partners, whether it be engineering, warehousing, logistics, and we've gotten into those in different ways. But more commonly now, and the way that uh, I'm taking the company is more on the investment side. And so we are we have access to just phenomenal manufacturers around the world that make and do all different types of things for automotive partners that you know maybe aren't well known yet. Um, some maybe are established in certain areas in Europe, but not the U.S. or in the U.S., but not in Europe or in Asia, but not in Europe. And so we already help them grow with our sales efforts, with our other businesses, and sometimes with our own personal equity, we invest in them. Um, and we love doing that because we, we believe in them. If we work with them, why wouldn't we want to have some skin in the game too? But my plan is to open this up on a bigger scale and let the financial model kind of be the core of what we do and bring in some of our partners and allow them the opportunity to invest in these companies as well, just like we do. Therefore, providing additional capital for you know much faster growth for our principals. So that's the way that we're going. That was a very short. No, I love that. I mean, something that you said was just is, is fascinating to me. I mean, what did you see or observe or learn, or was it just an instinct to say, okay, here's our business model since the late 70s, and we'll get into this in a minute. Sure, we've tweaked it along the way and expanded and gotten into to more areas of the business. But what did you see from the investment side that said, you know, we need to double down on this and provide this as a platform? Where was that line of sight that you said, okay, we're taking the company this direction? Yeah, so I have to give credit where credit's due. And, you know, my father and I, we certainly do not see eye to eye um, on a lot of things, but there are certainly times that, I think for sure I'm right. And, you know, he, he does something and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. That was absolutely brilliant. And I'm shocked. But we've always invested. And my father's been a big proponent of whatever we do, um, investing in different businesses. And it, it wasn't necessarily our partners from the sales business. It was friends of ours in, um, in Texas with oil and gas and um, natural minerals and also some manufacturing too. But it wasn't on a large scale. It was kind of just as we had some capital free, go and do that. But in 2020 was really the when things started shifting for us. And it was uh, COVID. I had I was living in Seattle at the time. I left for college, moved to Chicago, then moved to Seattle, short uh, of it. But during COVID, we left Seattle because my wife was pregnant and came to Michigan because we thought, you know, of course, COVID's not going to be in Michigan. We'll just be in Seattle, then we'll move back. So we left that way. Then COVID came to Michigan on my birthday, March 18th was when uh, Michigan shut down in 2020. And so then we were fortunate enough that we had the ability to move to my dad's house in Florida. 
and hang out with them there. Kids could be outside. Both my kids got to be really great swimmers through COVID. There were some some certain some silver linings to everything that we all went through, but we were slow. Our people travel for work. They were not traveling. We entertained. We couldn't entertain. We had a really tough time keeping our workforce on and not firing. And we had a lot of back and forth about this. You know, we've got 150 salespeople. What are they going to do if this doesn't go away? You know, their job is sales. They can't do sales sitting at home when everything's shut down and we're still paying everything. So we made the tough decision to keep them. But at the same time, my dad can't sit still. And he was talking to a company called Dura Automotive, which in automotive, pretty well-known name. I've heard them, didn't know a ton about them, but they were bankrupt. And he said, look, I'm thinking about buying Dura. And I said, we, you know, we can't even keep our sales company afloat going forward here with just spending money and not bringing anything in. And you want to buy a billion dollar company with 7,000 employees? He goes, yeah, but look at the price they're selling it for. This is such a deal. And I'm like, you're like your Greek mom going to the store, buying 17 pairs of socks because they're on sale that nobody needs. So I'm like, what are you doing? But we did definitely lots of arguments there, but it was a phenomenal move. And we quickly had a partner come to us and they had wanted to private equity group and they had wanted to acquire Dura too. We allowed them to join in with us. And then they brought us into some other amazing investments with them. They've been a really great partner of ours. So this has really been our foray into investing in manufacturing companies. And we've done that with some service providers as well recently. So we have maybe 12 companies now that not only are they a partner on the sales side of ours, but we also invest in them. And it's been such a great process for us that why wouldn't we want to bring more people into it and provide that kind of service for other people too. That's really interesting, CT. So so of the 12 companies now in, in this investment model that you've pivoted to, from an overall revenue perspective, you know, Carl, under the Charlton Inc. umbrella, is this 20% now, 50%, 80%? Like, give us a breakdown of how that works. Yeah, tough to say. I mean, it's really quarter by quarter and year by year. There's a lot of the companies we invest in sometimes are in rough spots, and that's why they're looking for cash. Not always. Sometimes they're just looking for growth, faster growth. But I anticipate this being the biggest portion going forward. It's not there yet, but I think it has the potential to be. And so with the acquisition of of Dura, was it in bankruptcy when you guys got involved or was it heading that direction or how did that work? No, it was fully in bankruptcy. They split the company and the, the previous owner took some plants with her and then sold the remaining plants and we took those over. Okay, so pivoting for a second, CT, because I always find the history in the beginning is kind of the the catapult. You know, you're laying the groundwork, and certainly on this podcast, the climb, crossroads, and defining moments, we dive into those decisions that were made. And coming from a family with multiple multi generational businesses inside of it. You know, I always find it fascinating to get inside the minds of the entrepreneurs that are continuing that multi-generational tradition inside the family business. So if I have it right, your dad and your grandfather were involved in this at the beginning. I think your grandfather had a, a career maybe in the radio space. And so talk about the dynamic between the two of them 
And then to the extent you were involved when your grandfather still was, but certainly the dynamic between you and your dad. And then if you can, and this is tougher, thinking ahead, you know, do you see additional Charlton's being involved in the business as it perpetuates forward? Yeah. So, you know, my father, he really built this business, but he couldn't have done it without my grandfather. He was young. He can be impulsive. My grandfather was had so much wisdom, had so little formal education, which didn't matter. I mean, he had so much wisdom, so much common sense. Just He just understood the way the world worked. And watching their dynamic and how they worked together, they it wasn't always pretty, but there was so much love there that they always got through it. And my father and I, it's similar. We, I think of myself a little more like my grandfather. My father is a total entrepreneur, always building things. He built this life and struggled so that I don't have to, right? And I realize that. And I see it as my job to take this gift that I've been given and grow it and make it better for our future generations. And he and I has, have different strengths. He is very emotional and off the cuff, which, you know, I say that not in a negative way. I'm more calculated. I'm more I'm conservative, but I focus more on growing the platform and the personnel and cultivating our people and allowing us to have a bigger platform to grow on, whereas he makes decisions just like that. Whether they're good or bad, it doesn't matter. The bad ones he forgets about. And then he joins, jumps into the good ones. It's really incredible to watch how he moves and the decisions he makes. My grandpa always used to say, he throws a bunch of shit at the wall and sees what sticks. <laughs> yeah. and, and I'll tell you what, there is a lot of merit into just having the balls to do things because so many people are just focused on what could go wrong. And when you take that out of it, it's amazing how successful you can be, right? Now, my thinking is, and the way that we're getting to have a, a, a better structure of our relationship and how we manage our businesses going forward is we take his approach and we let him be him and do these things. But then I analyze them and I look at, um, does this really make sense? And let's take these five ideas that if you talk to him are all going to be huge, unbelievable, right? And, and so let's focus on the ones that the numbers also say are going to be. And thus, instead of taking, you know, a fifth, a fifth, a fifth, a fifth, a fifth, let's take all of the money and put it into the one. And then we see the outcome can be a lot more successful. And so we're getting to that point of how we work together, but we're different. We're motivated by different things and we come from different backgrounds, thanks to him. So unpack that a little more because I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that and working with multi-generational businesses really all over the world and C-level people that what you just described, with the rare exception that you have an amazing professor that's maybe either done it or is just a good storyteller like that, that analysis capability, whether it's your dad's version, which is we're going to throw a bunch of shit at the wall and see what's, what sticks, or your ability to go, well, that's great, but let's get a little bit more analytical. How do you learn that? And how do we continue to teach that as technology's taking over, kids are writing college reports with chat GBT, like the world is, is changing from a technology standpoint, and it always has, but I feel like that's speeding up even more. How do we teach that ability to the next generation? I wish I knew. 
And I learned by watching my father, but I'm not him. I can't do the things that he does. We're different people. I'm not the entrepreneur that he is. I believe in my ability to grow this company. Um, I believe in my ability to do things better in a lot of ways than he did. But starting it from scratch the way that he did, you know, I don't know that they can be taught. I don't know that, you know, I watch him and I see what he does, but he has strengths that I don't, I just don't think I have. And from my perspective, I think with him, he was so busy building this business when I was young. I have the, the gift of, sure, I'm busy. I'm always doing, doing things we travel and what, but I get to pick and choose to be at my kid's end of year picnic. So my gift to my children is, <laughs> excuse me, is just being there more for them and getting because of the work that he did and my grandfather did, getting to be there for them more. And hopefully that platform of love gives them a foundation to want to jump in and, and do what we do and take it to another level. And if that happens, great. If they don't want to do that, great. It doesn't matter to me. I just want them to be happy. CT, thank you for for sharing and getting a little vulnerable there. I, I get choked up when I think about the amount of hours and stress that I try to shoulder to be the the leader of my family. And you know, I can remember distinctly being maybe second or third grade, and you know, hearing my parents, you know, trying to have a conversation, but it turned into an argument about money. And, you know, where are we going to get to keep this unbelievable piece of property that we lived on outside of Austin? This would have been the early 80s. And, you know, we my dad was way ahead of his time with this organic farm we were putting in and supplying that to Whole Foods when they had one location, you know, again, 30, 40 years ago. And it just sort of hit me. This light bulb went off like I don't ever want to have to have that kind of conversation. And so I think that's been that motivating lightning rod inside me to put in the extra hour on Friday afternoon when you don't want to, to get things organized for the next week or work over the weekend if you have to, or just always try to be thinking three or four steps ahead to anticipate some of these things that can come and sideswipe you. And uh, I think it takes a, a special person to recognize what has been done before by our family to allow us the freedoms that we have that maybe other generations in our family didn't, and then to start thinking about. And I think that's that's one of the amazing things of of this YPO adventure that we're on together. Like it provides you that space that you otherwise don't normally have to truly start thinking about what's important in the next half of our lives, right? And and how do we start positioning our kids and for that matter our grandkids to you know could continue this forward so it's they're tough conversations but i'm glad we're having them because i think that's what's going to make it ultimately successful yeah exactly i agree and and look i've got three kids i've got two boys and a little girl if one of them all of them want to be in our family business that's great if they don't that's great too it doesn't matter to me what they do i just see it as my job to do what i'm doing now and if I can provide the kind of life for them that I was provided and give them the opportunity to, to follow what they love doing, then I'll consider myself successful. That's awesome. That is so awesome. So pivoting a little bit, you mentioned 
<laughs> I loved how you said, well, you know, COVID's not going to be in Michigan. And then you moved down to Florida. COVID's not, you know, COVID for the better part of several years was everywhere. And being in a business so ingrained in the supply chain, what were you guys thinking about and, and how were you pivoting and adapting is grew from like something you heard on the news a little bit to something you couldn't escape because it consumed our lives for the better part of three years. Yeah, I think we've done a lot of pivoting and adapting and switching our focus to more of the, you know, the investment side and to looking at future technologies. When volumes were down, there's always growth somewhere. And actually, I had a friend of mine who recently retired from Ford, but he worked at Ford. He went to Stanford Business School years ago, and he said that all of his business school friends, he was always following them in, in the Bay Area. What are they doing? Oh, this is so exciting, all the stuff they're focused on. In the past few years, he said they've been calling him. They've been, for the first time, like, wow, what's going on at automotive? What's going on to Detroit? This is the most rapidly evolving industry now, I believe, in the U.S. And it's the biggest revolution we've had here in Detroit since you know the beginning of cars, really. Revenue models are shifting. Propulsion is shifting. Technologies are changing. You know, we're going in talking about software and services instead of suspension parts and tires, right? I mean, it's just, it's so, so different. And it's allowed us to really grow in different areas that before we had no expertise in. And so we work with with software businesses, with uh, businesses focused on autonomy, focused on ADAS, uh, advanced driver assistance systems. You don't know what that is. And we've been able to shift, uh, keep the company not just you know steady, but growing significantly in spite of the challenges. And we still have supply chain challenges everywhere. It's getting better, but initially the, the cost of shipping things from China was just astronomical. And uh, of course, we do manufacture in China, in India as well. That's kind of come back down. We still have legacy issues, but we're getting through it. We're figuring it out. And we're still going to be making cars. They might not have engines. They might be hydrogen. They might be electric. But in the future, we're still going to need something to drive us around. So we're still going to be here for a while. So, you know, seeing it through the lens of of being really at the the epicenter, certainly of U.S. car manufacturing. I mean, anybody that's read about it, studied about it, has an interest in the history of the automobile it all comes back to Detroit, Michigan. Do you see yourself becoming more of a aftermarkets distributor, investor in connector, and that that all moves more to the software side of things rather than the traditional hardware so, like side? Or I mean, how does that look 20, 30 years from now? Uh, man, I can't even tell you what it looks like 20 <laughs> months from now. So I don't know about 20 years from now, but just trying to stay alive here. But I think that it's certainly shifting and the percentage of the bomb, the building materials is going to be, it's going to look very different in the future. It already looks different. And you look at what, you know, Elon Musk has done with Tesla and, you know, like them, hate them, like the cars, don't like the cars, doesn't really matter. He's changed. He's changed the world because he's taken one, an electric car and made it a real car. He was the first one to do that. 
now all the OEMs are, right? Now every single OEM has some phenomenal electric vehicles and it's making it harder for them. But he also has done a great job of taking the build materials and shrinking it. And his dream, and I might get this a little bit wrong, but every time I'm at Tesla, they talk about how he wants like three or four major components where you just click, 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 there's your car. And it sounds crazy because the car has so many different parts, but he's really shrunk that down quite a bit and made it more modular where you can do that and made it where you can make different types of vehicles out of very similar part space. And and he's been highly successful and highly profitable doing that. So we're going to see more companies doing that. We're going to see the legacy companies doing that. We're going to see the legacy companies getting rid of a lot of their legacy costs and shifting how they do things. And you know, we saw them all scale up during COVID because all of a sudden everybody needed a car right now. And then now they're shrinking down because they realize they staffed up too much. And it's a uh, very interesting dynamic industry to be in. So I want to circle back to, to something you were talking about because I think it's really interesting to watch companies sort of try to figure out, certainly we've done this too, that that piece that you talked about with like just love and, and admiration and, and doing the right thing. As your company has continued to grow and you've gone international, and you get back to like the core principles of Charlton, how do you guys as leaders of your companies teach love and empathy inside the workforce because i think you know so many companies you get so caught up in profitability and ebitda numbers and do we bring on private equity do we go public it's it's all business focus and you forget that many of us like we can't survive without our employees they are our asset our most important piece and so what do you guys think about whether it's recruitment or looking at an acquisition or an investment and going back to those kind of core principles that you guys developed early on. Yeah, uh, it's always tough, right? Because there's oftentimes doing what's right or being empathetic isn't the best thing for the company. And as a leader of the business, you have a duty to that company, but as a human being, you have a duty too, right? So the best thing that we can do is lead by example. I also try and make a conscious effort to always be there to listen to my people. A lot of them have great ideas. It doesn't matter, you know, if something comes from, you know, if it was their responsibility or not. And I think one of the beauties of running a, you know, a small family business is everybody can come up and raise their hand and say, hey, what you're doing right here is stupid. We should be doing it this this way. And I'm okay hearing that. I love hearing that. I might not always agree with it, but sometimes I do agree with it. You mentioned also the the different cultures and things that we work in. And I think that's something that does make our business a bit unique. The way that people operate in Europe or in Asia and specifically in different countries within those continents is very different than the way we work here, right? You take, for instance, our sales force in the US, which is heavily motivated by commission. They want to eat what they kill. You go to Europe and that's not always the case. They a lot of times want stability. They want a corporate car. They don't want to make to rely on the commission that they make, which is kind of funny a lot of times because oftentimes they're really amazing at it. 
And they might have made more money doing it that way. But for them, it's just a different style of how they prefer to be taken care of. And so it's important that as we go to these different cultures that we certainly follow what their social norms are, but then we bring a little bit of our American entrepreneurial spirit at the same time. And I think, you know, Japan is a great example of that, where I absolutely love Japan. I love everything about it. I love the culture. I love the people. I love the food. I just, and it's very fascinating for me. And business in Japan couldn't be more different than in the US. The way that you have to interact with honor and, you know, you don't necessarily speak your mind right away and counteracting that because oftentimes when we have somebody in Japan and they say, oh, well, we talked to Toyota and they're just not interested. So I'm never going to call them again. Like, well, we then we need to figure out what they're interested in. We need to shift. We need to go to a different direction. And that mentality is very American and not so Japanese, but finding the right mix of our culture and their culture, I think, is what makes the way that we operate unique. No, I love that. So keeping on that, that sort of talk track, you know, if you're a historian at all, you look back at all of the great runs from the Roman Empire to the British Empire, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of them have had a beginning and then different chapters along the way. And so if you think about United States of America, Detroit, Michigan, where your company is founded and, and headquartered, and we think about our viewpoints of consumerism and also this capitalistic model that we seem to be big proponents of, creators of. And then you go global with your business and you mentioned the the different cultural nuances of Japan or, or certainly what's going on in China right now, what's going on in Russia right now, how India is really booming as a as an economic global force, like thinking through all that and then thinking through your company business, what are you excited about and what are you worried about? Oof, tough question. I'm excited about watching certain countries, how quickly they can grow. Countries that have some truly amazing people who were more third world, but now in the past few years, all of this new technology in the vehicle specifically, and of course, everywhere else in the world, but my world is pretty focused on automotive. Really, they have a lot of expertise. You look at you look at India, you look at how fast India is growing. I'm not talking about population, I'm talking about in technology and in their expertise in different areas. And then also Ukraine. I mean, we have we have a partner in Ukraine that we started working with in 2020. I was there with them in 2021 when we were talking about Russian troops lining up and everyone's saying, nah, you know, they always do stuff like this. It's not going to happen. And then quickly after, it certainly did happen. And the resiliency of people like that who have had to fight so hard for things that we in America don't have to fight for, our house, right? Our, our ability to live. It's not capital. It's just you know, human issues that they're fighting for. They're so resilient that we watched them, one company that we work with, war started and they said, yeah, sure, war is going on, but we're going to migrate. We're going to open offices in Poland, in Belarus, in Portugal, in India, in Colombia, and stop telling people we're a Ukrainian company. We're an Eastern European com company. 
And during the first year of the war, if you look at their growth, I mean, they dipped for a minute and then their year-over-year growth rate at the end 2022 was like 50%. They're still just continuing to grow through it. And they still operate in Ukraine. And I was just with the CEO in Poland last week. And I'm like, you know, how's Lviv? How's Ukraine? He said, well, my family's all back there. I was like, yeah, it's fine. Like, it's fine. He's like, yeah, my people are there. So I'm there. It's truly unbelievable watching countries do things like this that we're so fortunate in the U.S. to not have to fight with. No, great answer. You know, one of the things, CT, that got my attention when you and I were first getting to know each other, I mentioned a little get together I was curating down at our family ranch with some great people from all swaths of life across across the United States. And, you know, I, I find with, with all successful entrepreneurs, they usually have, sometimes it's multiple, sometimes it's just one they're hyper-focused on, but interests outside of work that fuel a curiosity or a passion. You're like, hey, no problem. I'm going to try to make that event uh, down there. I'm, I'll be in Seattle, but I'll just fly down and meet you guys. Well, from Seattle to Houston is a, is a pretty big geographic jump. Talk to us about your interest in and pursuit of flight, because I know that's a big passion of yours. Yeah, it certainly is. Thank you. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate to have gotten my uh, pilot's license and done a good amount of my training before I had a wife and kids, because I don't know how I would do it today. And it still takes up a good amount of time. But for me, my interest outside of family and work is fine. And I've done it for 10 years now, and I, I continue to try and learn and reach new milestones. And so now our corporate aircraft, I fly. And so when we go places, not all the time, but when we have a, a good crew or need to make a few different stops or need to reach hard to, play, hard to uh, reach places, I fly. And um, it seems most of our employees have gotten pretty comfortable with it which is surprising. We, don't, we certainly would never force them to do it. They're always welcome to take a Delta flight if they should so choose. But pretty quickly, I think they realize that it's a little uh, more enjoyable when we're going there together. And I can give you a good example. It's such an incredible booster of our time, of our productivity, and I believe of morale too, because it allows our people to be back and with their families and, and me as well. And so we had a partner of ours in town from Korea and he was in Detroit. We took him and three of our executives, and we headed out to meet Rivian in uh, in uh, Irvine, Southern California, on a Monday. Spent the day there, dinner there. Next morning, we picked up another CEO of another one of our principals there, another company that we invested in. We brought him and everybody else up to the Bay Area. And we had meetings at Tesla, at Lucid, at Zoops. We had a dinner that night. The next day, we had to leave bright and early because we had to get up to Portland to Daimler Trucks Wednesday. So spent the day there with Daimler Trucks. Wednesday night, had a dinner in Seattle. So I had to get up to Seattle Wednesday night, Thursday all day, packed with meetings at Amazon, at Boeing, and at uh, Packard in Seattle. And then that coming weekend, my family was all headed up uh, to our house up in Northern Michigan. So I was able to leave Seattle after a meeting Friday morning, head right to meet them up North in Michigan. And I was there by, you know, four o'clock, five o'clock, right when my kids got up there after school. So if we didn't have that tool, that would have been a two-week trip, logistical nightmare, and you know, inevitably there'd be some kind of delay or something ruined or canceled, and 
you know, with us, it just, it ran perfectly smoothly. And so we're, we're fortunate that we get to use that uh, for business. No, that's awesome. Uh, so thinking about the fundamentals of preparing yourself to learn to be a pilot, to control an aircraft, and, and probably most importantly, to, you know, be in charge of the people and their safety that are on that aircraft. Like, what have you learned about yourself and flying that transcends over to your leadership position inside your company? I've learned an absolute ton from flying. It has taught me that you can't cut corners. You can't fake things. You need to do everything by the book every time. You know, you can't just take, ah, oh, let's take off overweight this one time. Oh, we'll just break the law this one time. You can't do that. You're in the air. And everybody there and yourself, your lives are at stake, right? And it has really made me a different person. I also think it really plays into my strengths or maybe weaknesses, depending on how you look at it. I was always told I had ADD, and I, I certainly still have trouble focusing, you know, whether we should call it ADD and Medicaid people, that's a different story. I don't think we should. But I, of course, I'll be talking and, oh, shiny bird, look, right? And when I would do my, like my studying growing up in grade school and in high school, and I wasn't the best student, but my parents would tell me, go up in your room and sit in silence where you can focus. That doesn't make me focus. That makes me go crazy with my thoughts. I need to be in action. And when, so I'd go and sit in the kitchen, things were going on, mom's cooking, sister's yelling. That would allow me to focus. And with aviation, you have so many different things you are doing at the same time. It is a lesson in multitasking. And for me, that's what I need to focus. So it really suits my brain and how it works really, really well. You need to be an expert at flying. You need to be an expert on the weather. You need to be an expert on the mechanics of your aircraft. You need to be an expert in how you communicate with you know other aircraft and with air traffic control. And so you take all of these different things that come together into one vocation, hobby, whatever, and it really suits me. And I also really just find peace in it. I get up there and leave the world, that business world below and put the phone away and you get to the plane and you have to pre-flight it and you have to just change your focus and whatever meeting you had or whatever was bothering you that you're thinking about, you just have to put it out of your mind because now you're a pilot. And this is more important than anything else in the world at that moment. And that's for me, a relief when I get to do that and just focus on flying. So with most guests that we have on this podcast, CT, there, there's something like that, that that's their outlet. And then there's also something internally that they've focused on or that they know that is sort of their, their rock. When, when things get hard, they can turn to this. When waters get rough, they can turn to this. Like, wh What internally do you focus on that is that rock, that, that true north that can bring you back when you're sort of lost or searching? It's 100% my wife and kids. That, that's it. I sit there and think about them when I feel like I'm going to pull my hair out. And it's a, a sense of calming for me. And, you know, I was in, uh, I got back from Turkey on Saturday, but before that I was in you know, four other countries and it was a really, really tough week. Not a lot of sleep, lots of meetings, some really hard meetings. And there were a couple of times when I was just going a bit crazy 
And so, you know, I call my wife and she's always there and she gives me no grief when I'm gone. She understands. Last week was our anniversary and I was in Poland for our anniversary. Maybe Czech, I don't know. But she gets it. And even though she's sitting there dealing with the three kids, trying to get them ready for school and the baby's crying and the kids are fighting, she still finds a way to, you know, talk to me and help calm me down. And then I get to talk to them. And for me, that's that's the only thing that brings me back to earth and makes me realize what's going on. That's so awesome. So that is a perfect segue into wrapping up this unbelievably insightful hour with UCT. I know you're a busy man. It took us the better part of a year to get this podcast on the calendar, and I'm, I'm incredibly appreciative of your time. So as you know, if you've listened to any of the podcasts and our audience is vastly aware and used to this final question as we wrap up, you know, one of the passions behind starting this podcast was just getting back to the art of storytelling and, and creating memories and nuggets of information that otherwise get lost in this busy technological world that we live in. People just don't spend enough time sitting across from one another and explaining how they've done what they've done through the art of storytelling. So I'm very passionate about that. And this podcast, I believe, provides an amazing platform to capture those moments that three generations now from now, you're grandkids and great grandkids will be able to listen to. So in thinking about that, there's a question we always ask, and it's this phrase that it's not what you know, it's who you know. And then we turn it around and say, it's not necessarily who you know, but who knows you. And so in thinking about this multi-generational family that you're in, the successes that you've had as a company and that you're having as, as a father and a husband, what do you want your family to know about you? I would want them to know that no matter how much, how important business seems, how important flying or anything else seems, my priority in life is always my kids. And one value that I try and instill in them and that came from my grandfather is that you're no better than the guy sitting next to you and he's no better than you. And my grandfather lived that to an nth degree. You know, he would sit there and laugh with the the valet at the parking lot right after he had dinner with a big CEO. It just didn't matter to him. And I hope that I raise my kids to share that sort of attitude and, and be that way going forward. That's a beautiful answer from a beautiful human being. CT, this has been an awesome conversation. Definitely look forward to having you back. You know, what your family's doing, in my opinion, is the backbone of the United States and, and seeing you pivot and identifying an opportunity to take the profits from what you've done multi-generationally and now invest in other companies and help them get off the ground. I mean, that's what it's all about. Keep up the good work and please come back and talk to us again soon. Thank you, Michael. It was a privilege talking to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.